Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson to learn more. This one was a terrifying one. The FBI had found a sex trafficking group where the main guy was headquartered in Richmond, Virginia. And so they sent us out as kind of an undercover surveillance team to follow this guy because he had gotten a request, basically an invoice, to find a child of a certain age, look, hair color, that kind of thing. And then we had to follow him and watch him for two days as he scouted schoolyards. We had an agent from Richmond with us. And at one point he said, this is my kid's school. I cannot tell you what those words did to everybody on the radio. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And while we're working hard preparing for season two, we've got another fascinating bonus episode of of Labyrinths. The voice you just heard was that of retired FBI agent Steve Moore in a clip from an episode in season one, One Bite of the Elephant at a Time, about the complicated problem of child sex trafficking and the ethically shady stings police have been conducting to nab potential predators. If you haven't listened to that episode, go check it out. In fact, go listen to all of season one. In the meantime, we've got a great bonus episode with Special Agent Steve Moore. All right, exciting. Yeah. I'm excited to actually ask Steve about just fun, crazy stories. Usually we're asking him to opine upon really difficult cases. (laughs) Yeah, we're used to getting his expert opinion about things that he's not involved in. Right. And I just want to hear what he's actually done. Yeah, he's had such an interesting, crazy life. I mean, the FBI, they're so exclusive. Um, Still waiting to see if he's coming on. Maybe I should text him. I'm worried that I didn't even send him the Zoom link. Maybe I didn't. Shoot. Let me copy it from here. My guess is that Steve may or may not be able to get on right now because okay. I forgot to send him the Zoom link to confirm with him that we were doing it wow. for sure, for sure. So maybe right now, since we're in here, who is Steve Moore and how do you know him and what is his relevance to your life? Okay, so I know Steve Moore because he became invested in my case. I don't actually know the story of how he reached out or met my parents. The first time I came across the name Steve Moore was someone printed out a blog post that he had written explaining how it was that I could be coerced into a confession during an interrogation. And he, as someone who has interrogated people before, described all of the different ways that he was trained to break people down. And his position is, 
I am trained to break anyone, guilty or innocent. And if I am not careful about how I wield my training, I can get anyone to confess to anything if you just give me enough time. And so he made this really powerful argument that a lot of people really push back against, which is that innocent people simply, by definition, do not make false admissions or false confessions. And he was like, actually, they do all the time, and I can make you do it too. But of course, he's just the author of an article. I have no context of who he is. The first time I actually met him was the day I got out of prison. So the day that I received the verdict, I went to court during the day, and essentially it was a very short hearing. We make some final arguments, and then the jury and the judge goes into chambers to make a decision. Knowing that that was going to take several hours, I was sent back to the prison to await the verdict. And I just kind of laid in bed waiting The evening news was on. Everyone was just talking about my case, speculating about what was going to happen. I just tried to ignore everyone because I didn't want to talk to anyone and waited and waited and waited and waited. I was laying in bed when the guard arrived and told me it was time to go. I get up. I put on my jacket. I get taken down. It's very, very solemn. People are very quiet around me. I was shaking, I was scared, I was not talking. We arrive at the courthouse. I have to wait as normal in a little hole-in-the-wall cell while the rest of the court gets filled with spectators and lawyers and all of those people. As soon as everyone else is in the courtroom, I am brought in with Raffaele, and we await for the judge and jury to come in. Then the judge and jury are brought in, We stand and listen to the verdict. Leading into that verdict, I truly did not know what was going to happen. I was terrified, I was shaking. So the first thing I hear is, we find you guilty of slander. So I'm thinking, oh my God, the next thing, is that gonna be like guilty too? But then they say, you are acquitted for murder and you are immediately released from prison. I lose it. The guards once again take me out of the courtroom, take me back to the room where the cell is, but don't put me back in the cell. I am no longer required to be in the cell anymore. And instead, they just sort of sit me in a chair and try to explain to me that I won. (laughs) And I'm like, I know I won. I just am freaking out. I'm hysterical. People are congratulating me. People are going. A few of them are like, you won me some money from a bet. And they take me to a different parking lot where a police car, not a prison van, is waiting for me. I'm smushed in the back seat between two prison guards. We waited quite a bit before leaving because there was such a huge hysterical crowd outside of the courtroom. And we ended up kind of waiting a long time until we were actually able to leave. So I'm brought back into the prison, and as soon as I get there, people are banging on pans, like, outside the windows. They're screaming. I go upstairs. What are they screaming? Liberta! Liberta! Just losing their minds. Because, you know, every time someone leaves prison, everyone has that kind of ritual where they bang the pans and they yell, Liberta! Liberta! But this was happening from the male side of the prison, too. So it was 
so loud. Everyone was like going nuts. It was the weirdest feeling because suddenly like all of these doors were open to me that weren't open to me before. I was running up and down the hallway saying goodbye to people, high-fiving people, touching people's hands. Everyone was wishing me well. I grabbed just a few of the things from my cell that mattered to me, and I left everything else to my cellmate. And people were telling me, make sure to break your toothbrush. Make sure to... um..." There's a ritual where as you step out of the prison, you're supposed to sort of drag your right foot behind you as if you're sort of taking the next person out. So I'm leaving the prison, and there's this local politician and his lobbyist friend who have arranged a car for me to leave the prison because otherwise I would just be walking outside. I would, like, right. have a garbage bag of things. And, and you'd be shanked in the outside. street. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, or, or I would just be harassed by a ring of journalists. So they've arranged this private car that's going to drive me out of the prison so I don't have to walk into a throng of journalists. Of course, as soon as they open the prison gates, there is a throng of journalists there, and they're flashing cameras and going crazy and immediately start following us as soon as we leave the prison. It's crazy how, like, we're racing because people are chasing us, and we sort of swerve into the back parking lot behind some building, and there's a car waiting there, and there's Steve Moore in the front seat. Yeah, that's when I met you. Oh, someone here? I'm here. Hi! <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I No, this is my fault because I didn't actually receive confirmation from you that this was a good time. I just no, started... it, it is a good time. I just slept through my alarm, so I'm here now if you're available. We'll forgive Steve the missed alarm. After retiring from the FBI, he's been working as a pilot, and we caught him in a new time zone after a long flight. He's got plenty of stories from piloting, too. I had a few times where I thought, well, now I pooed the screech. I had a fire in an airplane. That scared me pretty bad. But today, we want to know what 25 years in the FBI is like. It depends on what you're working. If you're working healthcare fraud, you can coach your kid's basketball team, <laughs> you know, after work because you have a nine to five schedule. You choose what you want to do. And my choice became weapons of mass destruction, domestic terrorism, and international terrorism. And what comes with that is large-scale attacks or murders and stuff. So it wasn't probably the wisest thing, but I chose it. Hey, listeners. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast can only exist thanks to listener support. So please consider becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson. We're going to get back to how Steve helped escort Amanda out of Italy. But first, we asked Steve what the most dominant emotional note of his career was. His answer, tragedy. Tragic just seemed to keep happening over and over again. I was at a mine disaster that they expected was sabotage because of union problems. And there were 29 miners who died in that mine disaster. And I had to go to all the autopsies. 
it was big news. It was Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City isn't a huge town. And so I would go from 4 a.m. to like 3 p.m. doing the autopsies for about a week and then come home and turn on the TV. And they would be showing home videos of people who I had just watched dissected. That was hard. It was up at the University of Utah where they had the morgue. And the coroner's assistants were pre-med students and anthropology students and stuff. They were partiers like college kids are. And they had told me earlier on that, you know, just talking about the morgue, I said, this place is chilling and horrible. They said, no, we actually sometimes if we have to be here early after a party, we'll just come in and sleep in the morgue. And I said, (gasps) that's that's horrible. So Sunday morning at 4 a.m., I come in and there's one of them sleeping on a gurney. She's in a prom dress type thing. Her hair's done. She's got this little tiara on. So I tiptoe past her into the morgue offices. It was the only place with a light on and they were eating donuts. And the girl I thought was on the gurney was in the room eating a donut. What? And I said, wait a minute. I thought I just saw you in the party dress outside. She goes, nope, that's a customer. (gasps) And the reason she looked alive is she had been to the prom and she was wearing night makeup, evening heavy makeup. Right. Her boyfriend had broken up with her at the prom and she took sleeping pills and killed herself. Oh, jeez. Oh, she no. was 17. That's kind of collateral damage. That's something that wasn't even my case and I will never quite get over that. Whew. I couldn't imagine what the parents were going through at that very moment. I had one woman, one of the miners' wives, some idiot had told her that we were cutting the fingers off the miners. What? We had to because in the heat of the fire, the miners' hands clenched and that preserved their fingerprints. And I had to identify these people. So we were cutting off fingers and just rolling them in ink and Mm. doing fingerprints like that. Gosh, that alone has to be such a horrific thing to do. It's hard. It's hard. So I heard a commotion outside of the examination room and somebody said, you better get here. One of the wives is here. And her husband was being autopsied right at that point. Oh, no. She starts to run in. And I knew if she saw him, she would never forget what she saw. And I made a playing God decision that I wasn't going to let her do that. I put an NFL block on her and she she pounded on me with her fists and called me a butcher, every name in the world. Finally, there was a funeral director there who came in and he became one of my new heroes. He knew exactly what was going on and he took her outside and he said, you did the right thing. And Mm. that was hard. Yeah. I think, you know, it's pure tragedy, the shooting at the Jewish community center where a guy came in and just machine gunned a bunch of five-year-old boys because they were Jewish, walking around with kids who had blood splashed on them, stepping over children's blood in the hallway. Gosh. That was tragic. I got goosebumps. So if if your day-to-day, you learn to expect the tragic, what is it like when something hilarious happens? It is funnier than anything in the world, because I think we all know that humor is an immense stress reliever. 
there wasn't a day at work, it seemed, except for going to shooting scenes and stuff, where there wasn't a moment of just complete laughter and you would just allow yourself to fall into it like little kids unable to stop giggling. I can't even tell you all the times that we laughed in the most inappropriate ways and times. The autopsies, I remember once we had two people on different tables. One of them had a, an heirloom pocket watch handed down to him, and it wasn't running, obviously. And the guy on the table next to him had a Casio, a $20 Casio, and it was showing the right time. And we all applauded, you know. <laughs> SWAT was the funniest group of guys I have ever met in my life. In every SWAT team, those guys that come to the door and line up, that's all choreographed like a football play. And you play a specific position. Robert was number one. I was number two. And the number one and two guys are known as the shooters. They are the ones who shoot the quickest, shoot the fastest, and shoot the most accurately. Robert and I, that was our skill set. And so we were going up to a place up in the high desert, and there was kind of an enforcer for a gang. And he had been involved in a lot of shootings, and we finally got enough to go arrest him. But the problem was we knew he kept a weapon with him at all times, loaded, chambered. And the fear was that he would be in the master bedroom when they blew the front door and that he would come up shooting and have an advantage. Mm. And you just don't want him to shoot at you anyway. I mean, it's just really not ideal. We got a floor plan of the house and they told Robert and I where his bedroom window was. And it was behind this six foot cinder block wall around the whole house. And Robert and I were going to go post up by that window and try to get a view on him so that when the flashbangs went off in the front, if he got up and got a weapon, we were to take him out. Right. So it was kind of a serious thing that we were doing, a little stressful. And first thing we had to do is scale this six foot cinder block wall. So he boosted me up. I got on top and we're carrying 50 pounds of gear with helmets on and everything and a machine gun hanging off your back and pistol and all the extra ammunition. And so then I reached down and pulled him up. And so imagine what's going on. It's two guys on top of a three or four inch cinder block wall facing each other thinking, now how are we going to get down the other side without making noise? And about that time, I started to slip. Robert tried to catch me and he slipped and we both fell straddling that wall. (laughs) We hit our nuts so bad. It was epic. It was soul crushing. And so at first we're going, (laughs) don't make noise. We're trying to shush each other. And the, the team leader says, what's going on in our radios? We're saying, stand by. <laughs> <laughs> We've been taken out by ourselves. We are laying there and I'm thinking, oh, it's going to make so much noise if I throw up. They said, you need to give us two minutes. And so we sat there and nobody knew what was going on. And Robert looks up and he goes, you ready to go? I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we lost it. And now there is air coming out of our ears because we are holding our noses so we won't laugh out loud. And oh, my God, we went to the window and the guy was asleep and he had his curtains open. So we had a view of him 
And as soon as they hit the flashbangs, he starts to get out of bed. Robert and I turned on the lights on our guns and just pointed at him and said, don't, 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 don't. <laughs> Hang on there, buddy. Good morning. <laughs> and did it did it go down without a shot? Without a shot. Awesome. That's what SWAT's for. Its secondary purpose is to go in and do very violent things to protect other lives. But its main purpose is to present such an overwhelming force that anybody who sees it knows it's futile. And SWAT gets in a relatively small amount of shootings compared to just uniforms on the street. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you woke up and you were surrounded What are you going to do? Like, it makes sense. We can shoot you, but then we've got paperwork. So let's not do this. Right. No one wants the paperwork. (laughs) (laughs) Does anything come to mind about a time when you felt the most personally endangered? Yeah. You know, it all happens so fast. You're never usually afraid during it. I had one guy in a small interview room, pull a screwdriver on me. He was crazy. (gasps) And he said the FBI had shot down the space shuttle. And he was trying to stab me with a screwdriver and I didn't have a gun because that office didn't let you carry him around. So I had to hold this guy and we kind of danced around the room until another agent came in and helped. And wow, I had another guy on the Aryan Nations case when I was supposed to be undercover and we were blown and we didn't know it. Ooh. At 4 a.m. I'm going to find whether the Aryan Nations had moved a large caliber weapon someplace. So I'm driving up in the panhandle of Idaho, about 20 miles from Canada, in the middle of winter in a four by four going off to this place in the woods. And all of a sudden there is a car behind me, a tow truck. And they started coming up behind me and I drove away. And the problem was the police in this town, it was a little town called Sandpoint. They had been infiltrated by the Aryan nations. So if you called for help, you might or might not get it depending on who is on duty. Wow. So I'm calling for help on the FBI radio. And there's only one other agent within about 50 miles. Hmm. That was terrifying. I finally got this guy awake. So Steve and the other agent go back to the place in the woods to arrest the guy they suspect has moved this large caliber weapon. But like an idiot, I opened the door and he had a gun pointed right at me. I never even saw it. The agent next to me, who had a lot more experience, saw it and knocked me down like nobody's business trying to get to that gun. And that was scary afterwards. How old were you when this happened? 26. Gosh. Baby Steve could have been taken out. Yeah, that wouldn't have been good. My mom would have been upset. Not only that, there would have been no Steve Moore waiting in that dark parking lot the day Amanda was released from prison to help escort her to safety. The night Amanda was released from prison, Steve Moore was waiting in that dark parking lot with her mom to rendezvous with Amanda and help the two of them navigate to a safe house before they could fly out of Italy. But how he wound up there is a story in its own right, for Steve had no connection to Amanda or her family. What he had was his wife, Michelle, who pushed him to look into the case. Well, what happened is 
Michelle said, I think she's innocent. I said, have you listened to what the prosecutors have said, the evidence they had, this kind of stuff? And she said, yes, but I don't believe it. And, you know, I tend to give the benefit of the doubt to people in power who hold office until they give me a reason not to believe them. So if everything they said was true, Amanda's guilty. Michelle said, well, why don't you look at it and prove me wrong? And I never want to pass up that kind of opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) And the very first thing I looked into was the knife. And, well, it wouldn't fit into the stab wounds. And I knew the statistics on women stabbing women, which is almost nothing. Women don't do that unless they're in a gang. So that mitigated against it. The fact that no DNA or hair or anything of Amanda's was in the room was problematic for my little winning against Michelle. (laughs) And then Tom Wright got me the unedited crime scene videos. And I'm not bad at looking at crime scene videos. And I remember that Menini, at the time of your arrest, Amanda, had said, I've got this bleach receipt for the bleach that she used to clean up the crime scene. Well, I see Manini walking into this abattoir of a crime scene. I mean, blood everywhere. And I'm sorry if it's, I I don't mean to disturb you. And looking around, it just occurred to me, wait a minute, the crime scene wasn't cleaned at all. The guy's lying. It's not a mistake. And I can remember where I was sitting and the fact that the chill that ran up my spine just wouldn't stop. I almost got nauseous. You know, it was like, I can't ignore this. I can't do nothing. This is wrong. And at that point, I still had no reason to believe you weren't some monster like Manini had described. My mind hadn't jumped that far ahead. Really, my only thing was, whoever Amanda was, I now knew that she was not guilty of this crime, or probably at that point, not guilty. I, I still investigated for about a month until I was just absolutely convinced. And I just felt I had to get involved. And so one of the things I then did is tried to determine whether she was this monster that Manini said. So he decided to conduct a criminal profile of Amanda, thinking, If you won't believe these family members, would you believe an FBI agent who's never met her? I just felt like a stranger who saw somebody on a street corner have a heart attack, and I happened to be a doctor. Steve approached renowned criminal profiler John Douglas. He was a hero before I ever knew the name Amanda Knox. He agreed to help me on this if I would do the standard interview protocol and give him the stuff. Steve knew how to conduct field interviews, and Douglas, who you may know from Mindhunter, practically invented criminal profiling for the FBI, having interviewed serial killers like Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, and John Wayne Gacy, contributing significantly to the field of criminal psychology. I went up there and interviewed about everybody you knew, girl Brett, to your parents, to friends, and John Douglas. It it was very tense because he's an eccentric man, even though we're friends. And he said that this is one of the least violent persons I've ever profiled. He said he had seen some baby rabbits that were more violent than a man. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's seen Monty Python, clearly. Yes. Oh, yes. Conducting those interviews, meeting her family, led Steve and Michelle to become invested in the case on a personal level. So when the time came to whisk Amanda out of Italy, he was glad to offer his expertise. 
their fingers crossed for an acquittal, he began strategizing with Amanda's stepdad. Guy should have been CIA or FBI. <laughs> He's got too much personality for the FBI, so CIA would have been great for him. <laughs> yeah, we had agreed to meet in a parking garage not far from there. And he was in some rental little box. He can drive. And we ended up in the middle of nowhere, not far from town. But as you said, behind a building, it was one in the morning by that time, if I remember. Yeah. Your mom was either in the car when I got there or we picked her up on the way. The plan was obviously to get you to a safe place without the press finding out. And we drove to this place and stopped and turned out the lights. The car carrying Amanda pulled up next to them, and Steve and Amanda's mom, Etta, hopped in with her. Her stepdad took off in a separate direction to lure the press away. And so I got in the car. There was this very well-trained driver. Yes. And there was a Red Bull in the console. The only thing he said to me the whole night is I reached for the Red Bull and he goes, no, mine. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember that when you hopped in the car, you sort of just look back and you're like, I'm Steve Moore. (laughs) Do you you remember that? (laughs) Yes. And and you said, hi, I'm Amanda. And you put your hand out to shake hands. And I said, I know. (laughs) How are you feeling in that moment? I'm emotionally kind of spent, but it was very much like the Bureau. I had something to do, and I had to get her to a safe house. That was my responsibility. My job was to make decisions en route and to interdict any potential problems. So mission mode. I was in mission mode, and I was trying very hard to concentrate. But I do remember my impressions of Amanda, and my thought was she has to be absolutely confused by everything that's going on right now. And indeed I was. (laughs) You know, at first, I don't remember you doing anything but hugging your mom for about five minutes as we're driving. I was wondering how distracting my mom and I were, because I think I remember some squealing. Oh, oh yeah. (laughs) And, And see, that distracted me from mission mode because I wanted to have my Instagram moment and watch you guys have the most wonderful moment of your lives. And I was concerned that this guy didn't have his headlights on and it was one in the morning and he was driving at 150 kilometers an hour. Yeah, he turned them off so people wouldn't see us. Yes, and I said, how do you know where we're going? And he says, I've driven this route, you know, in broken English. He was high speed, low drag. He wasn't a chauffeur. (laughs) Just the way he told me to keep my hands off the Red Bull told me a lot. Eventually, they heard from Amanda's stepdad, who had successfully led the paparazzi away ending up getting his car rear-ended in the process. And I felt that we were miles ahead of them, and I started to relax a little bit. And you started to make calls on your cell phone. My mom's cell phone, which, first of all, was a touchscreen. So I remember that I was like, Mom, I can't make it work. (laughs) (laughs) And your mood at that point was, and I say this, in love and respect, completely inappropriate to your circumstances. <laughs> I've been accused of such, yes. You were happy. <laughs> you were seeing one side of the situation that was just delightful. 
I was seeing the entire other side of the situation that this isn't over until you're in Seattle. Right. But it was hilarious. You were calling these people and you were speaking in Italian and then fluent German. I would ask you a question and you would start answering in Italian. Yep. <laughs> that happened a lot. Yeah, that happened a lot for a long time. <laughs> the thing I remember was calling your uncle who is at home and he's I'm going to do my bad Amanda impression, Chris. Ooh. You said, hi, Kevin. No, it's not Etta. No. It's Amanda. <laughs> <laughs> there was this pause, and you said, oh, Kevin, breathe, breathe. It's going to be okay, Kevin. You know what? Now that you mention it, I remember that because he just lost it on the phone. He was hysterical. And Kevin, for the record, is... A stoic mechanic who is a, a man's man, football watching. Like when we go up, we just talk transmissions. I love the guy. He said, "You know, you're going to get more torque out of that C6 if you put it in the F150 than if you put it in the <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why they ever put it in those Crown Vicks. You know, ah, uh, Kevin. Wow. <laughs> Eventually, the phone battery died, and they made it to the safe house, which was really not in a safe place. You know, wasn't in the safest part of town. I did a few walks around the place, went back up, and you and your mom took one bedroom, and I slept on the kitchen floor because it wasn't a very big place. Oh no, I didn't realize that. Oh no, that's that's I didn't sign up for the Hilton, you know. <laughs> and I think I slept until the sun started to come up, so maybe three, four hours. And the thing that I will never ever forget. And the thing that really caused me the most emotional shock to my system was waking up at like 4.35. Maybe I heard you moving around in the room and I knocked on the door just to make sure you guys were all there. And you said, come in. And I said, well, it's a guy. And you said, there's only guys outside this room. <laughs> something like that. So clearly. <laughs> and I came in and you were sitting in a chair, just sitting in a chair on the wall. There was nothing to look at. You had nothing in your hands and you were just sitting there and you were still in the clothes from the night before. And your mom was in bed. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. I mean, I'm curious to remember it through your eyes, but I definitely remember that night and how I did not sleep at all. I remember watching my mom sleep. Oh, yeah. Like a freaking psychopath, <laughs> just sitting there <laughs> watching my mom sleep and just being like amazed that my mom was in the room with me. That really hit me really hard was that my mom was just in the room with me. I hadn't like seen my mom in any way but across a table in the visitation room for so many years. And I was just absorbing that and mm. totally unable to sleep because adrenaline was going like crazy. So, wow. Yeah, so I wanted to give you an analogy. I while I was in Honolulu, I uh, went over to Ford Island where part of the Pearl Harbor attack was, and they have a hangar there, and it's still standing from December seventh. And if you look up, there are bullet holes all through the glass. They never repaired. It is incredibly moving in a big, big way. And you say I wasn't there. I have no idea what they went through, but 
I feel like I'm in a place where something incredible happened, okay? Being in that room and being with you and your mom, I felt kind of the same way. Something massive is happening right now. And I can't even fathom how deep it is, but I was almost reverent about how much of a world rocking situation you were in. I felt just something monumental was going on. Do you remember what you told me, why you didn't sleep? I don't remember what I told you. What did I tell you? I said, did you not even sleep? And you said, there's no way I could sleep. And then you said, I was afraid that if I went to sleep, I'd wake up in prison. Mm. And this was all a dream. Well, thanks for walking back through that journey with us. I want to make sure that we give people the chance to know that all of these stories and more are available in your book. Oh, well, thank you. It is a uh, book called Special Agent Man. Which I love and you hate and I love it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I wanted the book to be called I'm Not Jack Bauer Mm. because I think the FBI, with some notable exceptions, are not a bunch of cold heroic types. We are normal people who just get put into situations that we have to cope with. I think the one common thing is most of them are eccentric in one way or the other. Mm. But anyway, that's what the book's about. What a career in the FBI is like from day one to the end. Yeah. Well, the reason I love that title is because it kind of comes with a baked-in theme song. (laughs) Special (laughs) Agent Man. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, Steve. Thank you so much, Steve. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening. And thank you for joining us for this bonus episode of Labyrinths. We've got another one coming up for you next week that's all about love. Stay tuned for season two. And in the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. At KnoxRobinson.com. And please, subscribe, rate, review us, and most of all, tell your friends what they're missing out on. This episode was written by us, edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. In the Labyrinth's podcast system, the listener is serenaded by two separate but equally important hosts, Amanda Knox, who brings authenticity and empathy, and Christopher Robinson, who brings intellectual curiosity. These are their stories. What do you think, Knox? Looks like a podcast junkie shot up with one too many ads. Should have become a patron from the looks of it. Who wouldn't prefer ad-free episodes and signed books and live video hangouts over overdosing on ads in an alleyway? Don't patronize me, Knox. Leave that to the listener. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.